Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manus Chavla, and the guest joining me today is a prolific writer, debater, and perhaps one of the most incisive China watchers of our generation. He's a Rhodes Scholar, a DPhil in politics at Balliol, a founder of the Oxford Political Review, and a founding partner to Oxford's Policy Advisory Group. Uh, joining me from Hong Kong is Brian Wong. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure's mine, thank you. So, Brian, I've been reading your work for a while, and, and there's quite a bit of it, really. Um, and I think there's sort of one thread that I see emerging that I find very, very interesting, sort of this meta-narrative about how we think about China in the West and how we should be thinking about China in the West. And I think you quite rightly point out that, you know, the way we sort of currently in academic and policy and journalistic circles think about it is we think of the Chinese state as this monolithic, homogenous uh, entity uh, that some might say as you know systematically or predictably kind of brainwashed uh, the public into this delusional way of thinking. And even if we don't say that explicitly, that sort of underpins often the way that we make assumptions and conclusions about you know when we write about these things. So as you very rightly point out, I mean the Chinese public uh, aren't lemmings. Uh, and I'm curious sort of what you think causes this sort of fundamental misalignment of how we so often think about China in the West, what it actually is. Uh, and also more specifically, how is your kind of personal background, uh, you know, led you to come to that conclusion? Thanks. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me, first of all, and thank you very much for those intriguing questions. I want to break down my answers to that um, into two parts. The first concerns are the academic question, theoretical issues at hand, and the second revolves around where my personal sort of vantage point and where I'm coming from ultimately into this picture, where that lies. So in terms of the academic question, when it comes to the essentializing tendencies or proclivities in analyzing China, rather than describing this problem as a unidimensional issue, I'd actually break it down into two uh, separate axes. You can call them orthogonal axes. I would prefer to think of them as somewhat perpendicular, although not strictly perpendicular. The first of them is essentially the extent to which we attribute heterogeneity to China versus homogeneity. And the second concerns essentially the lenses through which we read China, when we see China as completely different and disparate and innately in its governing logic and systems of societal norms, you know, radically divergent from the uh, from the West or the proverbial West, and I'll get into that in a second as to why I don't think that's a term that makes much sense in and of itself beyond political construction and packaging. And then on the other end, let's claim that China moves and thinks and behaves exactly as the West does, both in terms of A, what its people deems to be normatively significant, and B, what its leaders care about in relation to international relations. These are two separate axes. And I just want to start by noting that you know, a lot of the cause for seeing China in one way or another, whether it be attempts on a part of relatively orthodox and radical, I guess, theoreticians within, you know, classic uh, Chinese political traditions, framing the idea that China has a completely disparate model now, a China model that cannot be understood or replicated anywhere else, or even if it is replicated, must be based upon learning and respecting China. That's you know, one extreme, right? And then on the other extreme, there's the view that actually the Chinese people are all democracy and freedom-loving folks who are oppressed by the ruling regime in accordance with these folks' eyes. And ergo, we ought to also, by the way, read the regime through uh, analogous lenses or lenses of analogization that compare them with the American state, with the European states. These are the two extreme ends. And as much as I'd like to think that, you know, the academic space in terms of really rigorous analysis doesn't actually only revolve around these two ends, unfortunately, increasingly in mass discourse and 
precipitously in certain segments of think tank and policy space. These two ends and extremities are all that we see emanating from the discussions at large. But that's, a, I think, problem that's oft identified by excellent, excellent folks, you know, people like Kayser Quo, um, and also uh, actually uh, UGA at Chatham House, Kerry Brown, uh, closer to home here in London, Rana Mitter, they all point out, right, that there's a temptation and tendency on the part of, you know, uh, folks to, to think that the because this is the mass discourse, that that's all there is to the academic space, whereas in practice, the theory space and the study of China is far more complex and intricate, and there, there's substantially more undercurrents and ideological debates being had in the space. So I don't want to relitigate the critique and also the counter-critique there. The second axis I do want to focus on, though, concerns homogeneity versus heterogeneity. And the reason why this axis is not strictly perpendicular is because it does run somewhat in a parallel, right, conceptually, with what I said previously. If you think of China as a mere replica of the Western model, you might see it as an individualistic, fragmented state that's covered or, or framed merely through the lenses of, you know, a strict homogenous state because it's a cover or superficial rendition of a very divergent state. Or it might be because you recognize heterogeneity amongst the Chinese public that some of them genuinely support and believe that a party is a party that has led them out of poverty and led them into successes. Others are more lukewarm and have milk and toast responses to the ruling party. And then some others, of course, would oppose the party on grounds of conflicting values and ideals. So there is, to some extent, an overlap. But what I will say is, ultimately, you can recognize that China is a heterogeneous entity without therefore believing that China is a benign country and vice versa. You might believe that China is a benign country, yet packed to the brim with people who think alike, act alike, and behave alike. Whereas how I place myself on this sort of two-dimensional map, I'd say I firmly believe that China is a social, culturally heterogeneous society with a higher level of political uniformity that nevertheless is continually revised and negotiated through negotiations and bargaining between different levels of the ruling elite, which in turn have an imperfect, although extant relationship with the people when it comes to de facto legitimation of their governance and the rule. And separately on the spectrum of China as completely different from the West versus completely and merely an imitation of the West, again, I would note this, yes, China is different. Yes, China does things differently, but it also learns and it also in an ideal world imitates and takes the very best of the West and incorporates that into China. One of the most successful periods um, since I guess 1949 in contemporary China or Chinese history under the current party remains the era of reform and opening up, right? This is one of the many successful periods. I think to me, it's an epochal turning point that signified China transitioning from an inward looking ideological dogmatic uh, ideologically dogmatic and economically uh, zealous and frankly, a not particularly successful economy prioritize 70s into one that provides and supplies large swathes of its population with access to, at the very least to material comfort, to security and goods, coupled with the burgeoning middle class that we're seeing right now in coastal cities and also increasingly in inland regions. And indeed, the works of Astrid Norden and uh, uh, Li Cheng at Brookings on the middle class and the role played by the middle class in China, Astrid's not at uh, Brookings, she's at uh, KCL. Their works, I think, remind me a lot of the, the era of promise and hope that defined the 1980s and 1990s when people started putting food onto the tables, not just because they were party members or cadres that were deemed to be politically correct, which was kind of what occurred in the earlier days of, say, the 1970s during the Cultural Revolution, but also because they were able to put their own produce out into the markets for sale. They were able to enter into private market transactions 
transactions and capitalize upon the financialization and globalization of China. These are successes in modern Chinese history that should not be understated and should be taken seriously. But how we evaluate them and whether or not we think, ooh, this suggests that China is completely disparate and distinctive from the West, you know, the answer to this question must be one where we deal with it and treat it with caution. Yes, there are elements that only China could have done and only China does well, but there are also many elements that the successes of them depended upon not China or Sinocentric factors insofar as the structural soundness of the logic embedded in it, like market reforms, like more choices and sovereignty granted to individual consumers and whatnot. Now, finally, on to the personal story and vantage point. Now, please do tell me if I'm you know, being too soliloquacious, but what I will say is where I come into the field of China watching, it's, it's a mixture of personal interest and also theoretical, I guess, and academic pursuits. Now, full disclosure, in terms of my academic training, I'm a political theorist, um, uh, aspirant, I suppose. I wouldn't even say I'm a qualified poll theorist just yet. But I specialize in political philosophy, specifically pertaining to authoritarian regimes and non-democratic states, as well as how citizens' responsibilities sort of interact with the state structures in these places. And, and that's why I personally have found interest in expanding political philosophy beyond the traditional, I guess, spheres that you often read about, hear about, and think about and in, in, I guess, Anglo-American schools of poll theory. And I, I must sort of give a shout out here too to a lot of the decolonization campaigns and attempts to diversify the curricula that we see on university campuses. So that's one element which sort of inspires me to take a more sort of meta-theoretical and conceptual uh, landscape, right, an assessment of the landscape per se. But obviously, Theory alone doesn't quite allow us to unlock the intricacies of empirics on the ground. And that's where the second half of my motivation comes in. Uh, as someone who was born in and, and brought up and raised in Hong Kong, uh, despite my, my somewhat bizarre range of accents, what I will say is I, I'm fascinated about Hong Kong's unique role to play in China's modernization and globalization efforts and I don't want us to, to fall for simplistic binaristic narratives that don't necessarily do the fruition and the creativity of this city justice, nor does it recognize the complexities involved in sort of mainland Hong Kong relations or indeed Chinese politics at large. So that's kind of the sort of the, the springboard, right, that I had happened to encounter and that propelled me to think about how I could contribute towards the space that is China watching and China-centered commentary and analysis at large. So I suppose that's my relatively concise, not really, answer to your first question. <laughs> lots, lots to unpack. That was very, very interesting. I think one thing that caught my attention is, um, you know, the way we think about China is, is possibly more intentional than, than we might think, right? Like when you think about, uh, you know, the West making out China to be the sort of homogeneous instead of heterogeneous entity, um, there's a certain inherently political element to that that I think is often easy to be ignored. Because if we can distance ourselves, uh, you know, as again, you say the West, which isn't quite the concert it seems to be, if we can distance ourselves from a so-called Chinese model, then we can be on a pedestal, on a moral pedestal, uh, to, to sort of proclaim that our foreign policy you know, decisions are, are driven by this sort of inherent sense uh, that what we're doing is substantially different and substantially normatively better than what China's doing. And I see that particularly in the case of uh, you know, you look at the Tory backbenchers uh, and there's this sort of incessant and often irrational uh, kind of moral upstanding on China and, and certain cases where that's completely should have should be encouraged in certain cases where it shouldn't. Um, but you know, and, and, and like you mentioned, China 
doesn't necessarily see the West that way. It incorporates elements of it that it sees fit for its own model uh, and improves upon it. Um, I don't think we think about that as often the other way around. Do you think there's things that uh, the West, broadly speaking, can learn from China and what are they? There are broadly three questions that I can sort of unpack from what you said just then. The first is essentially what do I make of you know, the, the, the broader political landscape and undercurrents in the way China is framed in Western discourses. The second concerns if there's anything that the West could learn from China. And thirdly, I suppose there's also the, the under, underlying sentiment of is the West too homogenizing in the way it approaches China? I, I'm going to answer the first and third questions in conjunction and answer the second question uh, subsequently to that. I want to just note sort of an undergirding um, affirmation of a tenet that I think is quite important, which is that each and every country has the right to pursue their own self-interest. And it would be naive and delusional to say that, okay, if I'm a British MP, I need to pursue the interests of another state, unless quite literally you're in the pockets of the other state, uh, in which case I suppose that makes sense, but it's not exactly something that I think uh, would, would conform with the interests of what you're supposed to do or, or the moral protocol of an MP. You're supposed to advocate and back for your own side. So I, I think it's perfectly reasonable, right, that country statesmen, politicians view foreign policy through the lenses of, you know, predominantly uh, we in a narrow sense, not in a broad, we are the world sort of foreign policy, because in that case, if that's the lens, then presumably it's not foreign policy, it's just international policy that's in fact domestic policy. But that's not the lens through which we imagine, nor indeed should it be the lens through which politicians engaging in foreign policy making uh, through which they, they understand the world. So it's perfectly reasonable to say, I want to prioritize British interests, just as, uh, as a British politician, just as German politicians would say, you know, German self-interest and people's interest is most important. Uh, and just as in China's case, right, you want to prioritize what's good for the Chinese people, uh, irrespective to some extent of what or how others are affected. So I think that is an overarching concession and an acceptance on my part of that being a reasonable sort of doctrine. Now, is it an overriding trumping doctrine? We'll get into that in a second. I don't think it is, right? Like even in the case of individual rights and liberties as a harm's principle, John Stuart Mill standard stuff that I'm not gonna relitigate here. In the case of speech, the offense principle or the instigatory incitement principle that limits speech per se. So even in the case of pursuing narrow self-interest, so long as you're not sort of a strict Machiavellian and also complete cynic when it comes to the room and space for morals and international uh, discourses and international relations. And I do know folks who, who think that way. So long as you're not a, an absolute skeptic, right, who believes that there's no intrinsic value in such norms, I think this right to put your country's interests first exists, but must always be constrained and weighed against a basket of considerations. The first basket concerns ultimately when your interests are in fact frustrated by your viewing other countries in strictly oppositional and zero-sum lenses. Now, I'm not advocating the absolute relativistic statement that all countries could cooperate with all other countries. That's naive. What I am suggesting here is that relative to, and as Jock supposed against, the often cynical and deeply, deeply exclusionary rhetoric about which we imagine and paint other countries, which I don't think is necessarily the product of you know, malicious manipulation or malicious uh, intent, but isn't insofar as just merely the product of structural inertia and inculcated habitus. If that's indeed the problem at hand here, then we need to fix it by expanding the range or the diversity of ways through which, mutually speaking, the interests of more than one party could be advanced through multilateral or bilateral collaboration. And that is why the first challenge I would posit, you know, to this whole 
either Britain wins or China wins, either EU wins or China wins, or indeed either China wins or Japan wins, which you know zealous nationalists tend to stoke right as a rhetoric and rhetorical tool within the mainland. I, I refuse to believe in. I think you know sometimes in life things are far less zero sum, they're more positive sum, if anything, than anything else. Right? Take the example of climate change, where the supply of cheap solar panels could prove integral in the overarching eagle sustainability improvement of supply chains at large. Or alternatively, in public health uh, situations where transparent and politically unbiased investigations would be instrumental in regaining trust and also rebuilding a sense of accountability and also ameliorating tensions over you know, public health pandemics and also concerns, so to speak. Right. So I don't think, right, just because you believe your own country's interests matter, that therefore they must come at the expense of other countries. Peace is something that brings goods for all parties, not just and especially not in a context of, you know, a phony peace or uh, hyper-militarization, especially not, you know, in these cases, right, which we think that war or the violation of peace is the way out for any party, because war and, and conflict, save from the select few who belong to the privileged sort of military-industrial complex, are almost, almost always devastating for majority of parties involved. So the upshot here is we must be very careful in equating defending our own self-interest with undermining others' interests, especially in domains that they perceive to be very important. With that said, obviously, there are some cases where standing up for your own beliefs and your own interests does come at others' expenses. And to that I say, that's permissible, that's reasonable, that might be regrettable from the other country's citizens' point of view, but it is also morally permissible and justified from your own citizens' point of view, if and only if it doesn't also violate other constraints, like you know the rights and dignity of your own citizens, including American Chinese who feel hounded and persecuted under this new Cold War-esque rhetoric that seems to frame any and all of them as extensions of the Chinese state, or indeed in Britain, this paranoia concerning infiltration by people of different ethnicities because they're not seen to necessarily be compliant with the orthodoxy of politics as adopting certain segments of the spectrum. I'm not saying that infiltration and espionage don't exist. I'm merely suggesting here that we need to be very cautious and extra careful about the burdens that we're imposing upon those who cannot and do not feel as if they could speak up for themselves and fend for themselves under systems that implicitly designate them as hostile aliens to the system per se. And the third and final constraint is this. International relations, as with most important and complex decisions in life, are about weighing up different sets of considerations. It is fair to say that we care about labor conditions, about human rights, about the terms and policies, and also you know, how uh, trade is being carried out in intellectual property protection. All of that's fair. But we must also weigh it up against the opportunity costs that are therefore imposed upon us by certain courses of action we undertake in order to uphold the previous sets of interests. I don't think there's a definite answer as to which of these parts is the only part to take and how we ought to weigh them up conclusively, but we need to see this as a weighing exercise as opposed to an execution of an order and execution of a simplistic maxim exercise. And that ties me on to the fourth and final point to note, which is about pragmatism. This as I expand upon later on, I guess, uh, when you and if you choose to sort of ask me more about this per se, this is a very important element of my methodology as a writer, as a commentator, as an advocate. I firmly believe in pragmatism, which is getting things done as opposed to getting things said. It's easy to postulate, it's easy to pontificate, it's easy to offer all sorts of very snazzy grandstanding statements, right? I can wax lyrical about any and all topic I'd like to. And indeed, you know, I've been trained to do that. That's part of what I've been trained to do through my academic training. But that's one thing, to say the right things per se, 
What I'm more interested in is about getting the right outcomes. And getting the right outcomes requires flexibility of means. Sometimes it means going to war. Sometimes it means adopting harsher and more punitive mechanisms. Sometimes it means that you employ multilateral institutions to pressure the subject of your sort of your repudiation per se, or, or individuals that rightfully have earned your disdain through the morally unscrupulous conduct. In other cases, if the actors you're seeking to influence are indeed of a high level of potency, where you know that by indeed affirming or rather by, by castigating them, you are affirming the internal fears among certain segments, increasingly large segments of the populations about alleged foreign interference, imperialism, and a dogma of neo-hegemony. Then in that case, right, we have to be very careful about the means which we that we employ to change the situation on the ground. I'm not advocating no change whatsoever, you know, this, this minimalist world order where there are no interactions or attempts to influence one another. That's A, infeasible, and B, not desirable, and C, frankly, impracticable, right? So to those who say that foreign yeah, influence and interaction and bargaining could never happen in an ideal state, I mean, that just ignores the flagrant reality of globalization and exporting of soft and sharp power by many countries around the world. Yet on the other hand, what I am saying is what we need to do is to think flexibly and not to think monolithically and either going to war or continuous capitulation because you are a dogmatic and doctrinaire pacifist. Neither dogmatic pacifism nor dogmatic militarism could solve problems. What's needed here is, if anything, a rigid adherence to the principles of pragmatic prudence. And that ties me on to the second question very quickly. Do I think people or countries or, or agents at large could learn from China? Let's be very clear here. All countries, right, throughout the world's history and in the world today, have their own flaws, weaknesses, blemishes, as well as the successes and areas that others could learn from and draw from. China learned heavily and drew heavily from the way America did things with respect to its financial markets and also its economic policies in the early 1980s and 1990s. And then arguably towards the end of the 1990s and early 2000s, start looking at Germany as an alternative model, right? So you look at a book published under or by Li Daokui, a very famous Chinese economist concerning the German model, it reflects that China over recent years has started to think about sort of shifting from an American style consumption driven economy to also reorienting itself around production and industries and reindustrialization per se. So China itself has benefited from and must continue to learn from other states provided that it complies with international norms, which you know, in many cases it does actually do so. It doesn't seek to subvert or to overthrow or to supplant multilateral institutions. It's not building its own initiatives and saying, oh, you must either join this or that. It's instead offering what it views as a complementary alternative that other countries can opt into concurrently to their engaging and existing institutions. What I will say though is on the other hand, there are elements of the Chinese way of doing things per se that are worth learning. It's not the entirety of it that, that's worth other countries learning, nor am I suggesting that these experiences can be perfectly replicated elsewhere and recreated, right? That's impossible. But if you look at the centralization of resources, the direction of such resource to tackling pressing problems like the epidemics, right? Uh, th these are virtues of the Chinese way of doing things that we need to recognize and be cognizant of, not because we therefore must sing song and sort of sing the praise of uh, the Chinese state and be like, oh, you can't criticize China because that's a racist. That, that's an argument that's disingenuous. That's an argument that's wrong. But because ultimately, if we don't learn from countries like China, like Japan, like 
you know, Singapore and whatnot in making sense of how different countries and different parts of the world do things, we'd be missing out on a core chunk of possible role models and exemplars, right? And we can also learn, by the way, from things that other states have done wrong, right? So that is a core part of indeed, you know, how a, a, a dogmatic political ideology in China works that reacts actually to what it perceives to be failures of foreign examples of foreign exemplars. And a commonly cited trope in Chinese popular public parlance is the idea of the Dunka, the lighthouse, where America had previously been a lighthouse or a beacon of, of democratic light and rights in the eyes of many who had been brought up under American influences, literature, been exposed to American life through studying abroad in the 1980s and 1990s, and now returned to China only to find themselves increasingly disillusioned with what they perceive to be the weaknesses of democracies. Now, do I think their critique of democracy is completely valid? Perhaps not. But do I think their critique of democracy's failures when institutions are not sufficiently robust and resilient in face of, you know, the Capitol Hill riots and also attempts to subvert American democracy? You know, I, I think there is some validity in these sentiments. So we don't just learn from the positive features of other countries. We could also learn from what other countries did wrong, the dangers of mass populist mobilization of an imposition of sanctioned ideologies tolerated by the state or the elimination of challenges to economic orthodoxy that doesn't in fact work. These are all aspects and defects that other countries, all countries around the world would benefit from eschewing and being mindful of as they go about their own governance and political trajectory. So in short, yes, we can learn from China, but no, China is not perfect, nor is it claiming to be, or at the very least I hope a uh, majority of folks there in a country aren't claiming that it is indeed a perfect model of governance. Go back to what you said there about uh, a very specific point you made about, you know, the sort of dichotomy that we we're often made to see in terms of, um, you know, uh, not having that flexibility that we might need in terms of working with China or working against China. Uh, and I mean, like you rightly point out, there's, you know, much ink that's been spilled on, you know, Europe and the US and the West can can obviously work with China on so much on climate change, on public health, on various international security threats. Um, and in fact, that might be really the only way to solve some of these problems, uh, because they require international solutions. Uh, and I remember you writing very distinctly in a piece you wrote in sort of late 2021, uh, that what's sorely missing from this equation is a modicum of creativity. Um, and I don't hear that often, but I'm very intrigued. Could you could you flesh that idea out to me a little bit? What does that mean, and how can we sort of see that in practice? Sure. So I think what I was referring to, and you what you were referring to, was an article I wrote actually on Sino-European relations, and what I was sort of increasingly despairing at back then was this sense that you know we often talk about right models of international collaboration, cooperation, competition, or rivalry with China as if they were disparate, uh, disparate entities, as, uh, as if they were separate entities. And then there's a bunch of folks that say, you know, they can come sort of hand in hand. You know? So in some areas, it's cooperative. In some areas, it's collaborative. In some areas, it's competitive. And in some areas, you better watch out because we've got to you know, keep things separate as they ought to be. What I wanted to see sort of, differently or distinctly from both of these models was a sense of flexibility again, not just in terms of with respect to compartmentalization, 
and that sometimes compartmentalization works and sometimes it doesn't. And when compartmentalization doesn't quite work, so for instance, when one country says, you can't have your cake and eat it, you must agree to X before I do Y, maybe in those cases, provided that baselines are not undermined or core, core, core interests are not subverted, flexibility and compromise is in order. The flip side to this also holds true, by the way, right? Just because we can collaborate doesn't mean we have to collaborate, right? You can have competition that's healthy, that drives forward creative destruction and innovation. I'm pointing to a book right there that I read recently by Aguillon, Antonin and Brunel on exactly the power of creative destruction. Sometimes competition helps. You don't have to have you know, Chinese companies and American companies sharing everything they know on metaverse, climate change, global warming, because frankly speaking, then what's the incentive to innovate, right? So. I just think we need a modicum of creativity on a meta level. That's level one of analysis. Level two, creativity in terms of, you know, now that we, we agree, maybe in some cases, it is ideal to have a compartmentalized approach, right? That's both cooperative and rivalrous at, at, at once. Then in those instances, what are the areas over which cooperation can be forged? Much of the existing literature says global warming, climate change, global warming, climate change, but there's so much more surely in common as threats, as mutual threats confronting China, US, EU, Southeast Asia, uh, Southeast Asian countries, sorry, co combined and collectively, but also on an individual level, that it makes no sense to think that, ooh, your lived experiences are so vastly disjointed that from mine that we can't work together to solve these problems. If anything, pooling resources, pooling knowledge, pooling information on the following areas may well be a useful way of resolving these challenges. Firstly, the dangers of surveillance capitalism, right? Of big tech, of tech companies seizing upon the private data of consumers and also employing them for their own gains. And, and a corollary of that, by the way, is tech monopoly and oligopoly, which despite the fact that, you know, the Chinese regulations occurred at a level and with a pace so swift and so fundamental that it was hard for folks to make sense of as external investors, China did manage to rein in, at least for now, many of the largest sort of oligarchs in tech scene and industry in a country. Now, some might say, at what cost? They might ask that, and that's a valid question to ask. But it's not the case that you're asking that and saying nothing, therefore, you know, nothing good came out of it. But, you know, was it worth it? Right. Was were the benefits touted and floated and observed worth the cost? That's a very different comment and observation than saying, oh, the Chinese just did it randomly. They, they, they did it to the detriment of the economy. No benefits whatsoever. So that's one area where I say I think there is room for collaboration and pooling of shared experiences. Another area still is public uh, sort of security and also counterterrorism, where I fundamentally think that in an age of cyber terrorism or increasing threats to indeed our own information surplus and behavioral surplus per se, as well as of course, private data, we need strengthening of security measures and also protection against both state surveillance and also private companies spying and surveillance upon us. These are again areas where I think you know, China and Europe and America have much room in common to tackle these pressing challenges as well. So think more creatively, right? But finally, let's be clear, the Chinese state is not just about the government. What about the Chinese public? What about the Chinese people? What about you know, movements pressing for more emancipation of female rights, workers' rights. I firmly believe in the importance of transnational solidarity when it comes to the inclusion and enfranchisement of excluded minorities who often find themselves drawing the short end of the stick and fighting an uphill battle against strong
structures that don't understand them, against discourses that alienate them, against people that want to exclude them as opposed to include them. Now, there's a further question, of course, as to how you do it, the praxis, right? The practical side of things. And that's where it gets tricky because obviously some countries, more so than others, are very sensitive about perceived foreign interference and sort of infiltration into their societies. And unfortunately, as someone who supports globalization, I believe this heuristic and this paranoia concerning infiltration is gradually shifting from purely a few select states in East Asia to increasingly all across the world and over the world. And that has indirectly precluded the possibility for educational exchanges, academic exchanges, and NGOs and civil society groups working together to challenge systems of injustices that maybe have nothing whatsoever to do with the state at the end of the day, but nevertheless straddle right, the divide ironically. So for instance, the oppression against women, especially working class women, in under, I guess, kiriakal structures in certain Western European states, as well as how the hukou system in China had left right migrant women often feeling like they were left out of a voice or they were deprived of a voice and ability to speak out. These are shared challenges and shared lived realities across both Chinese and European civil societies. And for us to turn a blind eye to this or to ignore how solidarity could be forged in this sense would be to erase the agency and room for individual heterogeneous thought of both peoples or all peoples involved in this relationship. So all in all, creativity doesn't just mean you know, being creative on a very abstract and conceptual methodological level in terms of how we think about relations and strategy, but also on a more granular level as to where spheres of cooperation and uh, positive some interaction can be demarcated and carved out for others to pursue action in these domains. So that's, I guess, my, my answer to your question. Sorry for speaking for so long. <laughs> no, that's, that's perfectly fine. Lots of lots of really, really cool ideas there. Um, Brian, I want to ask you <clears throat> one last thing, because I feel like we've touched on sort of so many things today that sort of underpin this common theme. I mean, if, if there's if, if there's people in our audience, which I'm sure there are uh, listening to this and saying, you know, I've been reading all this stuff on China and and on Asia that kind of wildly conforms to this one mainstream way of thinking uh, that, you know, we've clearly pointed out uh, isn't the best way to think about it. And that there's, there's multiple other ways and uh, certainly some that are better than others. What would you recommend doing? You know, it just as a very, very baseline, like, you know, there's some university kids listening to this saying, you know, what should you read? What should you consume? What direction would you point them in? That's a great question. Um, what I will say is this. I think the first step is to admit impediments, as Shakespeare once wrote, when it comes to love. We are all fallible creatures. We could be wrong. I have been wrong many a time. Okay, let, 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 you know, I come here uh, with my hands fully, palms out, telling you I have been wrong many a time, not just about China, but about lots of things in life. And some, sometimes my friends point, point out my flaws and errors with uh, kindness and tolerance. Sometimes my friends or maybe ex-friends challenge me and call me names and antagonistically frame me. And still sometimes, you know, some folks would come up to me and say, I absolutely agree with you and then trash talk me behind my back. That, 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 that's besides the point. What's important, though, is a willingness to accept that in some issues, you could be wrong. And on some other issues, you were wrong. Yet, at the very same time, you must stick to what you currently believe to be true without giving in, without capitulating, without admitting to the flaws and issues. 
you know, that, that others want to frame you as ostensibly having, but you don't, in fact, have. So there's a fine line between intellectual humility and intellectual subservience. Subservience in the sense of servicing dominant structures and discourses, in the sense of complying and conforming with what the crowds want you to believe in, or ultimately bending to the wills of the popular audiences. So I think the, the first lesson I would offer is admit that you could be wrong, accept that you were wrong, yet at the very same time, back yourself. You know, back yourself, mate. Don't alienate yourself by repressing what you truly think in order to look, you know, more pleasing or more conforming or more uh, fundamentally resonant, I suppose, with a crowd you're seeking to placate. That's not going to work. And it's not how analysis works anyway in an ideal setting, per se. The second tip I'd say is read a voracious, read voraciously, sorry, a wide range of books, not just if you're interested in China, not, not just China related books, right? And I can get onto that in just a second, but also read books that have nothing ostensibly to do with China. So uh, I didn't mean to have this stack of books next to me because I have a very haphazard sort of book ordering system or rather book filing system. It just so happens that this is a pile of all the books I read uh, in the first month and a half uh, of 2022. So, so there are quite a lot of them. I'm not going to survey all of them, but I would read. I would read not just books in relation to China or in terms of political theory, my area of specialization, authoritarian regimes. I would also read about um, surveillance capitalism, which is a wonderful book, The Financial Cold War concerning US and China, and as well as actually Humankind, which I find a very optimistic, perhaps it's had too saturated interpretation of history uh, of mankind, but nevertheless, still a very robust and worthwhile read. So read voraciously. And not just you know in China studies per se, but in the field of China studies, read extensively and read for a diverse range of viewpoints, right? Don't just read books that play into your existing sort of stances and opinions. Because even if you disagree with the books that you read from the other side and you find them awfully written, right? And, and there are many a book that I shall not name here that I find awfully misinformed, awfully, you know, gratuitously wrong about China in all sorts of ways. Right. I won't mention them there, but but ultimately I would still read them and I would mark and annotate them. I would write things all over the place in the book, not because I disrespect the author, but because I respect the author anyway, despite what they're saying. Unless what's being advanced in that book is racist, xenophobic, ethnocentric, uh, ultra-nationalistic, fascistic nonsense, which even then I would still read and critique and, and rip to shreds. Unless that's the case, I would always treat the author of each and every book and article I read with respect. I assume that they write the books and the works in good faith, and I engage with them in good faith. That sort of modus operandi may not be reciprocated. They might think, oh, why should I reciprocate your good faith per se, right? But that doesn't matter because you're not reading to please the author. You're not reading to please anyone. You're reading to enrich your own understanding of a country that's only going to become ever more important in one way or another, regardless of how it does economically or fares politically. So be an op have an open mind, read exhaustively, but also read across a range of positionalities, right? That's the second tip I'd offer. The third tip is speak with and interact with people from the country you're trying to study. That, 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 that's a general rule of thumb. And in the context of China, of course, you should speak with, you know, not just Chinese people, you know, students, youth, intellectuals, officials, and non-officials, academics, thinkers, uh, activists, dissidents from China. You should definitely do that. 
but you could also speak to those who are interested and whose lives are intertwined with China. Because as I like to think of it, the story of modern China has never been just about, you know, the, the ethnically Han Chinese, which by the way is a Han centric worldview that I think is erroneous. It also includes all the minority ethnicities in China and beyond, including the expat who landed in Shanghai uh, out of a sheer serendipity or out of a sheer coincidence 25 years ago and has never left the city since, including uh, the romantic partner maybe to someone who hails from mainland China, but this romantic partner of theirs personally feels very strongly about China. They also have their own China story to tell. If we only see China's story and the Chinese story as a story of a Han ethnic group over the past 60 years of prosperity and affluence and wealth, then that's an unfortunately excessively myopic way of looking at things, right? And that is why I'm a firm believer that nationalism, you know, nationalism, especially in its most violent forms, that's the most devastating threat, an existential threat to mankind in the 21st century, right? It is a threat that we must take seriously for the upcoming decades to come. When people only think through narrow and tightened frames of what their imagined communities interests are best served by, as opposed to who else they could also think about as belonging to them or to the common life, right? And I'm, I'm citing here sort of the, the insights I accrued and drew from reading Fractured, which is a wonderful book, uh, talking about dissipation of the big common life in British society. If that's indeed the world we live in, then that's a very dangerous world. That's one where misunderstandings and miscommunication, where deliberate or unintended misinterpretations of signals are are fermented and are carried where politicians, demagogues, populists spinning the other side's rhetoric as the boogeyman, as demonstrative of an existential threat, when a real existential threat lies with them, when these phenomena would proliferate, when peace would no longer be a guaranteed constant, not that it was in the first place, and when conflict would become an accepted modus operandi, that is a world I would not want to live in. And that is a world I would fight and do every bit I can in opposing and resisting. So I think that's where I'd like to end, I guess, my remarks so far. So uh, I, I hope uh, that's all right with you. Fantastic, Brian. That was an incredibly fascinating discussion and, and certainly leaving me with a lot to think, but I'm sure our viewers as well. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. And to find out more about London Politico, please visit our website, londonpolitico.com and follow us on, on LinkedIn. Uh, that's all for this episode. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I will see you next week.